what is up my dudes welcome back to olympia oddities i hope everyone's still practicing their social distancing and isn't getting that bad of cabin fever from being too cooped up um i know that i'm definitely dealing with it really bad i'm starting to miss all my friends right about now but you know what we're gonna get through this um i've got a interesting story that we're all gonna get big mad about together today at least i'll be big mad you can just listen to me get big mad But, you know, I've been using this time to spend time with my pets, especially working with Sadie on some of her puppy training, and to finish up some projects around my place, and, you know, try to get more episodes of the podcast out for you guys, so I guess it's not all bad. So today's episode does have a content warning. I'm going to be talking about sexual and physical abuse of minors in today's episode, and it is is some incredibly rough stuff to listen to. I'm telling you now, so feel free to skip it if you need to. And as usual, I won't be going into more detail than necessary, but telling today's story without mentioning it would be impossible. Today, I'm going to be telling you about the brutal conditions and treatment that dozens, if not hundreds, of minors faced at Olympia's OK Boys Ranch. My main source for this episode was a Seattle Times article called OK Boys Ranch, How a House of Horrors Stayed Open, System Gets Blame, But People Failed to Heed Warnings by Mark Martassa, Carrie Murakami, and David Postman. The the OK Boys Ranch was a ranch only in its name. No livestock roamed the property, there was no crops, and there was no wide open space. There was simply a rundown house located in East Olympia. The ranch had been founded in 1971 after a local judge and Olympia Kiwanis Club member, Hewitt Henry, had been disturbed by the boys ending up in his courts. He wanted to have a facility for these boys where they could receive nurturing and loving care, someplace they could all call home, said former Boys Ranch board member Virgil Clarkson. And, okay, before we go deeper into this, I don't really know what the Kiwanis do. I know that they're a club. I know that they used to have a booth at Lake Fair where, when I still ate meat, they had the best roast beef sandwiches. And when I started um, researching this, I was, you know, I'm in social distancing with my dad right now. So um, we were like, oh no. the roast beef sandwiches are tainted now. <laughs> um, after learning all of this, um, they don't sell them anymore, so no more tainted roast beef sandwiches. Uh, and I don't really know what they're up to, what they're doing, or I don't think that they're up to anything bad nowadays, so keep that in mind before we go into this more. So, Kiwanis Club members all donated $100 to the building of the home. One member, G.I. Griffith, donated the land, and a number member, Bob Stevens, designed the home. The OK in the Boys Ranch name, if you haven't figured it out by now, came from the Olympia Kiwanis founding the home. The ranch was an independent nonprofit organization led by Thomas Van Warden, the ranch's director. The Kiwanis also helped oversee the ranch, and from its members, a board of directors was created. Since it was a foster group home, it was supported and regulated by the state as well. DSHS paid the facility $2,500,000 a year to provide shelter and therapeutic counseling to 13 boys. The boys varied in age, but were usually between 11 and 16 years old. They stayed at the ranch an average of 18 months. It was a level 3 home, meaning many of the kids came from backgrounds of abuse and neglect. Many had a history of being runaways, of drug use, and of fighting. Some had committed sexual assaults, and others had been trafficked into sexual slavery. Almost all of them had been in trouble with the law in some way. Van Warden described his goal for the boys' home to provide them with structure, a certain kind of lifestyle, a certain predictability to their life. In just a few short years, the ranch's reality of everyday living couldn't have been further from Van Warden's original goal. 
One of the few things the boys could rely on as a daily occurrence was violence. When a 10-year-old named David arrived at the ranch, he and another boy were shoved into a circle with the other boys surrounding them. They were then forced to fight each other until one of them was knocked out or begging for mercy. And where were the staff during this? They were right there, offering tips for fighting. (sighs) Now, I'm starting to get big mad. You can hear it. A 12-year-old named Chris was thrown into a pit and had rocks thrown at him as his initiation. 11-year-old Ryan suffered sexual assaults committed by the older residents on an almost nightly occurrence. He was also beaten severely. The staff would participate in beating the boys and then would deny them medical care. If the boys complained about this, they were then told that they could take care of themselves. Children were also hit with wooden paddles or spoons and told to stand with their noses against a wall for as many as four hours. If they blinked, the staff would start their time over again. Many of these incidents were recorded in daily behavior logs by the staff. One account detailed a weapon on a 13-year-old boy in the shower with a bar of soap placed in a sock as a beating weapon. One brief, gut-twisting entry just states, Night Terrorism. Van Warden would read behavior logs about once a month, but the amount of violence and the severity of the attacks did little to move him into action. When he was questioned about one of the events in the log, he said that it didn't necessarily mean that anyone had been beaten, and that, quote, I don't know who said that. It may have been an unskilled staff member that doesn't understand the difference between a beating and a couple of good slugs. Sir, in what world should any adult or any person hit a child, let alone a staff of a facility for level three severely abused kids? You know, it's this entire thing is infuriating to me. Um... David, the 10-year-old who was forced to fight upon arrival to the ranch, said that he was repeatedly raped by two older residents and that the staff ignored his pleas for help. Another 10-year-old boy, identified as Boy Q, was raped by a staff member. The boy went to Colette Queener, the assistant director, and asked if he could see a doctor. According to the settlement documents in his lawsuit, Queener told him that, quote, the bleeding was not a problem and that it would stop. Every single person in this deserves to, like, have the worst life imaginable. You know what? I I just- there's no heroes in this story. I'm just gonna let you know now. In 1980, a Kitsap man donated $20,000 worth of property on a lake to the boys' ranch. In return, the ranch allowed residents to visit him on the weekends. What could possibly go wrong? What could go wrong with letting these kids go visit this strange man? Oh, guess what? He was later convicted of molesting several of the boys. (sighs) It seems like around this time, the ranch decided that there just wasn't any possible way to keep the sexual acts and violence from happening, so they just gave up trying to have any resemblance of control over the facilities. Queener, who was a former nun and Idaho school teacher, was asked in her deposition if there was any way to stop the kids from having sex. It didn't appear to be possible, she said. Russell Rambo, the head coach at the ranch, said, If two boys want to have sex, they will figure out a way. Just like if two boys want to smoke a cigarette, or if two boys want to shoplift at a store, they will figure out a way. This attitude would lead to a night that would eventually shut the ranch down for good. On June 14th, 1992, five boys from the ranch broke into a nearby house. They stole some alcohol and brought it back to their rooms at the ranch. After sharing the alcohol with two more boys, they all ended up undressing and having group sex. Staff members, who were required by the law and their contract to supervise the boys 24 hours a day, broke up the scene twice but made no attempt to separate the boys from each other. 
So the group sex continued on until the next morning. Although the ranch's contract forbade them of having anyone over the age of 16 there, the oldest of the boys in the group that night was 17. The youngest two were just 11. On June 16th, Rambo placed a call to Miriam Madsen for advice. Madsen had worked in the state's child welfare system for 27 years and was the Child Protective Services Supervisor for Southwest Washington. Unfortunately for the residents of this ranch, this phone call wouldn't help at all. Phone calls to higher-ups, when they were rarely made, hadn't ever helped them. Officials in three different branches of Children and Family Services regularly dismissed complaints from Boys Ranch residents, as well as independent reports concerning their safety. Investigators would almost always believe the staff over the boys, or claim that the boys were simply trying to shift the blame away from them for the bad things that they had done themselves. One of the investigators explained that one of the boys who had accused the staff of raping him also thought that the FBI and CIA had dispatched squads of assassins to hunt him down, and details like that made finding the truth of the problems at the ranch even more difficult. The way DSHS Child Services was set up, at least at the time of this, um, was to try to help out in these type of situations, making sure that there's enough eyes on the situation so that if one person fails a child, others will notice and step in. The first was CPS. CPS workers have the authority to remove children from unsafe homes. Any allegation of child abuse reported to CPS, even a phone call, is required to be investigated. Then they assign a caseworker to each child removed from a home, or Child Welfare Services assigns caseworkers to children removed from homes by CPS. Um, Child Welfare Services then attempts to place kids in a safer environment. Ideally, they're placed with a relative, and then if that doesn't work, foster care, or in a last resort, a group home, such as the Boys Ranch. And then finally, there's the DSHS licensing program, which is supposed to regulate and monitor the group homes. They have the authority to renew or decline group home licenses at their three-year evaluations and also to revoke licenses if needed. When serious abuse is found, including beatings and sexual assault, employees in any of the three above branches are legally required to contact the police and the appropriate person in the two other branches. Um, and then the auditing branch of DSHS also conducts periodic reviews of places such as the Boys Ranch. It is entirely possible for the system to fail, though, as shown as what happened to a boy named Terrence. Terrence arrived at the ranch in September of 1987. He was 11, and on his second night at the ranch, the other boy showed up in his room and took turns beating him. A few nights later, an older boy came to his room at night and sexually assaulted him. In behavior logs over the following month, Terrence explained that he was constantly intimidating. Intimidated. One morning, some members of the group had urinated on his clothing. He was afraid of going to school because of threats of being beaten up. In November, a week before his 12th birthday, Terrence was walking through the woods when another boy surprised him by grabbing his face and beating him. On December 3rd, Terrence ran away. He stopped at a local convenience store and made a phone call to Richard England, a social worker. He explained that he had been raped by two older boys and begged not to be sent back to the ranch. Terrence stood in the 7-Eleven waiting, only to be dismayed when Van Warden and another staffer drove up in a van to take him back. The first thing that the social worker Richard England had done was call the boys' ranch. Ugh! Okay. In the van, Terrence named the boys that had raped him and explained that there had been more than one attack. The group home monitor showed up and interviewed Terrence. This time, Terrence said no that the boys didn't coerce him into sexual contact. The alleged perpetrators of the attack were never interviewed, but later acknowledged what they did when they were speaking to Rambo. After an investigation lasting less than five minutes, the conclusion was made that Terrence was in no danger at the ranch. 
Van Warden called England to report that Terrence hadn't been raped after all, but had been involved in, quote, typical adolescent experimentation, unquote. CPS took no further action, and neither the boys' ranch or the state contacted the police like they were supposed to. Terrence stayed at the ranch for another two years. In 1989, the ranch's license had been up for renewal. In October of the previous year, a DSHS auditor named Art Control launched a review of the boys' ranch, concentrating on an 18-month period, from May 1989 to October 1988. He found 39 serious violations, including 15 that had been flagged just in 1981, but never corrected. Control also reported that the conditions of the ranch were unsanitary, the staff were poorly trained, and medical records were missing information or absent altogether. He also found that none of the top administrators had the required Master's of Social Work degree. This had also been noted in 1981 and 1979 examinations, but had been ignored, just like everything else. He also found money mismanagement and systematic overbilling and double billing of the state. The ranch owed the state $106,000, and he recommended that the state take immediate action to get it back. One example of the fraud committed by the ranch was that they were billing the state for therapy that they provided to the boys, except for that they had no therapy program and no one on the staff was qualified to provide one. His final recommendation, released in June 1989, was, the auditors determined that the operation of the OK Boys Ranch to, not, to be not in compliance with the terms and conditions of the contracts and state regulations and policies. The agency had serious problems requiring immediately, or immediate corrective action. Out of Washington's 10 minimum requirements for licensing, the ranch was in violation of 8 out of the 10. It should have been a warning sign in hindsight, former board member Virgil Clarkson said of the audit, but we had so much faith in Tom Van Warden and his staff. He gave us the impression that children of that age acted out their sexual fantasies, if you will. He was the authority. Ew. Yuck. Gross, 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 gross. For some reason, instead of closing the ranch, they gave them six months time to try to comply with their requirements, a corrective action plan was formed. Immediately, and not surprisingly, this plan went to shit. The plan to get the staff their required master's degrees was quickly ignored. When it was time to see if the ranch was in accordance with all the requirements, the investigator marked them off as passing, just based off Van Warden promising that everything had changed and gotten better. After about a year of haggling, the $106,000 owed to the state was settled for $6,903 in cash and a promise by Van Warden to take in two extra boys for the year at no charge to the state. Luckily, that never ended up happening. As more violations racked up at the ranch, the police became involved in their final investigation of the ranch. As far back as 1985, Police Chief Werner had been meeting with the board of directors of the ranch about the problems. At that time, the ranch was generating more police calls than anywhere else in the city. Werner expected concern and action on behalf of the board members when he voiced his concerns. Instead, he said, they basically told me not to stick my nose into something I didn't know anything about. They said Van Warden was the expert and I wasn't. Four days after meeting with the Boys Ranch Board in July, Police Chief Werner wrote to Lane, a board member who was also an assistant attorney general, and outlined the apparent crimes that police investigators had found. Werner wrote, we offer this information to you as evidence of the profound impact criminal con conduct perpetrated by residents of the OK Boys Ranch is having on our community and the residents themselves. And still, the board of directors ignored the police chief, continuing to listen to the staff who had proved over and over again that they were incompetent at best and sadistic fucks at the worst. So, 
Chief Warner and the Olympia City Prosecutor teamed up to try to shut the ranch down for good. Cushman wrote to Thurston County Prosecutor Patrick Sutherland on September 23rd, recommending that criminal charges of failure to report abuse be filed against Van Warden, Queener, and Rambo. She said, The actual atmosphere in which the boys live is chaotic, without controls or structure, and basically permitted a gross level of abuse of every description to be perpetuated among the residents. The environment, far from being a beneficial therapeutic one, is an environment likely to develop and increase criminal activity among these boys, particularly sexually predatory behavior. In November, Hartwell's second, more thorough review of the ranch was complete. This time, he found, quote, a general lack of understanding by the boys' ranch staff of the serious implications of sexual behavior for the physical and emotional health of the students and of what incidents were reportable. The prevailing attitude, he said, was that boys will be boys. Hartwell reached a basic agreement with Van Warden on seven areas of improvement for correction. The details, he said, could be worked out between the ranch and the licensing office. The licensing office wasn't impressed because Van Warden had signed and ignored such plans before. So, in December, the boys' ranch was issued an ultimatum. If the Kiwanis wanted to keep the boys' ranch open, she said, Van Warden would have to go. The board initially resisted, but shortly after Van Warden's attorney, Jerome Buzzard, (laughs) attorney named Buzzard, sorry, that got me, called the prosecutor's office with a proposal. If Sutherland agreed not to file criminal charges, Van Warden would resign. Sutherland took the deal, and on January 1st, 1993, Queener was installed as the director. Although she had almost just been arrested, she was the only candidate that the Kiwanis interviewed for the position. We knew she was a person of high moral standards and that she worked well with children, said board president Jane Skinner. The board members knew this, Skinner added, because that's what Van Warden had told them. (sighs) Is this person a person of high moral standards and working well with children? I don't think so. And as for Van Warden, when he departed, his friends in the Kiwanis raised $1,400 as a retirement gift, and the board also voted to give him $10,000 in severance pay. And since there was no criminal case, there was no proof of illegal activity, which meant there was no need for further CPS investigations, what meant there was no need for any action by the licensing office. Probation was over, and the boys, business, or the boys ranch was back in business. Not much changed after Queener took over as the director. In fact, some accounts actually state that life at the ranch got even worse. A licensing review in August found 16 violations of either the minimum licensing requirements or the previous year's new and improved corrective action plan. In the first nine months of 1994, there were 97 reportable incidents. In June, a legal guardian of one of the residents called CPS to report the conditions at the ranch. They described general filth and clutter, cooked food left out attracting flies before being served, and residents smoking tobacco and marijuana. CPS determined that the complaint was unfounded and that the residents were at low risk. Finally, in September of 1994, after even more reports of sexual assaults and physical abuse and a settlement of $4.1 million in a lawsuit against the state, Solis ordered the boys' ranch closed. This was two years after yet another failed police investigation, five years since the auditor's report had been completely ignored, and seven years since Terrence had run away from the camp, only to be brought right back. Attorney General Christine Gregwire said, When she charged Van Warden, Queener, and Russell, she would have also liked to have charged DSHS officials at all levels and members of the ranch board. She couldn't, she said, because under state law, none of them had committed a provable crime. 
Many of the residents from the OK Boys Ranch suffered from PTSD and other continuing physical and emotional, emotional health problems. Andy, a former resident who was 12 at the time of his Boys Ranch residency, said, The only really fit punishment is for them to go through exactly what we went through. It was hell. Thank you for listening to another episode of Olympia Oddities. If you want to support the podcast, follow the social media pages at Olympia Oddities Podcast. Leave me a positive review or tell a friend about me. Um, Since this episode was really dark, I think next time we're going to do a nice, light-hearted, fun, cryptid one. So stay tuned for that. Um, So long. Bye, friends, and stay safe.